0: Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers. A weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence. Retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont. The leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy. Pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions 244 1777 or 877 291 8255.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. It's great to be back with you after hope, Christmas and New Year's uh, holidays. I hope you had good holidays. Uh, We have a light and powdery snow, as all of you know, here in Vermont today. Uh, Wearing my other hat for just a moment as a physician, I would note that shoveling snow is actually one of the most physically demanding uh, activities most of us tend to do. If you have a cardiac history or cardiac risk factors and begin to feel any chest pain, shortness of breath, or lightheadedness while shoveling, for goodness sake, stop uh, or at least take a break. Also, before we begin today, and for those who have not heard, this is very sad news this morning, and that is that the great stage and movie actor Sidney Poitier has died. In his brilliant on-screen roles and in his life, he embodied energy, a passion, and integrity. And to quote a line from a prominent song from one of his movies, he was a friend who taught us right from wrong, and he will be greatly missed. So I do dedicate today's show to Sir with Love. Now, moving on to the show, uh, we have all heard the horrifying statistics of opioid overdoses and deaths, both here in Vermont and throughout the country. Uh, we tend to hear less about the deaths caused by alcoholism, but those are also very real, uh, especially here in Vermont. We hear somewhat less about the paths to recovery for afflicted individuals and their families. We have two guests today who have spent uh, years now helping people to recover from addictions, and I'm really pleased and honored to have them both here. Uh, Mr. Dan McDermott is on the phone with us from Boca Raton, Florida. And Mr. Walter Wolf is on the phone with us from Southern California. Uh, Dan, uh, who I actually uh, knew in high school, uh, was born in Iowa. He graduated from Yale University and law school at the University of Iowa. And in a long career, legal career, has practiced in many areas of corporate and regulatory law. In June of 2020, he became executive director of the Florida Lawyers Association funded, uh, which is funded by the uh, Florida Bar to provide confidential assistance and support to the Florida legal community in addressing mental health and sub- substance abuse issues. Uh, Mr. Walter Wolf, uh, has been a movie, uh, producer, uh, in, and television producer for 30 years, uh, and more recently, uh, has been helping people with interventions in terms of their substance abuse issues. Um, he has uh, written and published a book, uh, which we'll talk about uh, this hour. It's called The Right Rehab. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. It can be found in both hardcover and Kindle. And uh, I'll tell you more about the book, and I'll let him tell us more about the book. But it is described as a step-by-step guide that details how to identify and access treatment options available to all individuals and families, no matter how plentiful or sparse their resources. It also protects families from falling prey to the imposters and grifters in this $42 billion a year treatment industry. So I want to welcome you both, uh, Dan McDermott and Walter Wolf. And, Dan, I think I'm going to start with you. Thanks for being here.
2: Sure. Well, it's great to be with you today.
1: Well, Along, As I noted, along with your long legal career, which uh, which you're still involved in, um, you have a personal story and then a professional story in terms of helping people with with their uh, alcohol and substance issues. Could you share with us a little bit about how you came into this field?
2: Sure. Glad to do it. And listen, Lewis, at the outset, let me join you in uh, extending condolences on Sidney Poitier's passing. He was a he was a great uh, actor and leader, uh, and uh, uh, an inspiration to so many of us. Um, and I also want to ask you, Lewis, to keep an eye on the clock and help guide me through how you like your your the, the we will do that to go here, because I, I am very happy to kind of uh, tell you a little bit about my own background and my own experience in recovery. I have been sober now uh, thirty six years. Um, I am a, in recovery from alcoholism um and uh so I have that kind of personal experience with it which I'm very happy to describe and share with you and as you mentioned currently now in kind of my uh, elder years I am still involved professionally and, and head up a nonprofit organization that offers assistance to uh lawyers in Florida who um could benefit from um uh our, our programs to treat substance use disorders and more Health disorders of, of all other kinds as well. So it's been a it's been a gratifying and rewarding run, both personally and, and now in a position where I can kind of give back to uh, to to my profession and to my community. And I'm grateful to be involved. Let so me I'm Dan, let me say, just
1: stop you for a minute because I want our listeners to know that we wanted them to be involved in this show. Our phone lines are open. We always like hearing from you at eight zero two two four four. 1777. Again, that is 802-244-1777 here at WDEV. And I should just add, uh, Dan, you you were something of, uh, and I don't want to embarrass you, but you were something of a superstar at at our school, uh, both academically and in track and field. And then you were a a drummer and a, on a terrific rock and roll band. So you, life got off to a really good start. Um, what, what happened after that?
2: Well, that's, that's great, and that's kind of you to say, and it may be a little bit exaggerated, but I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, here's, here's my, here's my experience of my story, Lewis. Uh, I was born into the youngest of four children in a very warm, supportive, tight-knit family. So my, my experience growing up, the environment that I lived in was one that does not produce alcoholics because of the environment we're in, right? What I found is that, and you're right, in high school especially, I hardly ever drank. I was really kind of known among my high school classmates as the teetotaler. I was the one who didn't drink. Um, And I I think that changed for me in the spring of my senior year of of high school. I was of age. Back then the drinking age was 18, and I was already 18. And I started started drinking socially, uh, you know, uh, in the spring of my senior year. But I found, and before that, Lewis, I, there were probably, I can remember, three or four occasions where I drank uh, before the end of my senior year in high school. And what's notable to me now is every time I did, I got extremely intoxicated, you know, to the point of drilling up, blacking out, you know, all of it, right? So I never, on reflection, had a what would be a normal relationship with alcohol. Every time I drank, I got drunk. But as I say, in high school, that was not that often, right? When I got to college, I very quickly became a social drinker, and I became a daily drinker. Um, You mentioned I I did run track and field. high school and when I got to college I decided I knew what that kind of hard work was all about and I opted to get involved in another activity and I joined a singing group an acapella singing group at Yale and you know it was relatively social we we rehearsed and we we tried to you know do well at what we did but there was all it was also a social event every time we performed and there was a lot of drinking nothing in my experience as a college kid raised red flags for me. In other words, I was drinking about the way the people around me were drinking. Now, in reflection, I'll also say there were a lot of kids at Yale who weren't drinking the way we were, but you know, there was nothing unusual that gave me pause about my drinking habits. But it became, in college, very quickly, regular, and, again, heavy. I would say if I took a breath test almost any given night in in college, I probably would fail. You know, I, I, I was drinking to the point of legal intoxication, I would say, every day. That's consistent with my beginning, where I never really had the experience where I'd have one drink or one beer. You know, it's always, if I drank at all, it would be more. Um but that's how it went for me in college. There were no real downsides to it. I, you know, um, uh, uh, um, I was young and I was, you know, able to bounce back every day. And, and um, but then, I, but then I went to law school right after after finishing up at Yale, and I moved back to my home state of Iowa, which I left when I was in early grade school. So there was a new dynamic taking place here. I was going back to a place where I didn't know anybody, even though it was my home. And I was in, engaged in a new academic undertaking. And, you know, I uh, allowed myself to feel the pressure of all that. And I thought, okay, you know, uh, this is it. This is the bigger leagues. I'm in law school now. Um, and I found that my relationship with drinking changed in a very important way at that point, Lewis, because it wasn't any longer social drinking, although that happened. But I every night when I got home from the library, I lived in I drank by myself, and I drank to the point where I thought I was able to go to sleep. So I was almost using it as medicine, almost like a prescription.
1: Let me just ask ask you, at this point in in law school and now in your 20s, did you feel that it was yet a problem for you?
2: I really didn't. You know, I've asked myself often, Louis, you know, whether I was, you know, trying to kid myself about my drinking or not. And I didn't think it was a problem. I I thought at that point that I, you know, I recognized that I used alcohol differently than some other people, but I really thought it was a matter of choice. And I thought that, uh, you know, some people like a double cheeseburger instead of a single, and I like, you know, four drinks instead of one. So what's the difference? Um, I didn't think think it was a problem. In fact, I thought it was uh, an aid to me. I thought it was a pressure reliever. I thought it was a relaxer. And I remember having this fear that I wouldn't sleep well if I didn't do it. And I, I thought I needed to get a good night's sleep. So, you know, so, and that's really important uh, as I look back on my experience because it went from the happy go lucky, hey, let's all go out and have a pitcher of beer, to me kind of medicating myself every night. Have I had enough? Do you think I can go to sleep? The,
1: the unfortunate reality, too, from, is that alcohol actually interferes with uh, restorative sleep.
2: Exactly exactly, and that's that's something that was entirely lost on me, and as it turns out, Lewis, a lot of what's really the case with drinking was I had entirely backwards, you know uh, and to, and I'll tell you what I mean so by by now i'm I'm continuing to be a daily drinker, I'm drinking by myself, I'm drinking to put myself to sleep, not to participate in a social uh, uh occasion, and so forth. And at that point, you know, by now I'm an alcoholic, but I don't recognize it. I don't know it. And the rest of my experiences, what you hear happens to alcoholics, my drinking became increasingly progressive. You know, I needed greater and greater amounts of alcohol to get where I thought I needed to be. I switched drinks. I went from beer to wine to vodka. You know, I went through the whole progression that those who, who, you know, are familiar with some of this will, will recognize all of it was in service of trying to get to that level of intoxication every day where I thought I needed to be. Um, it came with several problems that, you know, I lost some important relationships over my drinking. There were, there were um, women that I dated seriously who just kind of, you know, told me they couldn't spend the rest of their lives watching me drink like I did. And I would kind of try to debate it with them. I said, well, hold on, what's the downside? Do I change? I mean, I'm doing well in my work. And they just say, you know, I'm, this isn't what I'm signing up for. I'm not going to sit and watch this every night. And I couldn't get those messages. I thought, well, okay, then we have a difference of opinion here, you know. But in retrospect, I, I, you know, I gave up something that I valued in order to keep drinking. And that's what an addiction will be to you. Um to shorten this up a little bit, uh, I happen to have been any part of it. You know, it, it was a funny thing because my drinking was progressive; it was ever greater. You know, I had all of the same experiences with hangovers, shakes in the morning, trying to pull myself together for work. But I would say, in my last year practicing law back in the Midwest, it was my best year professionally. I I, I did I, I won more cases in my last year of drinking than I won before. But everything else was falling apart. And I just, you know, all of us who come into recovery uh, in a situation like mine have to face some sort of bottom. There's some sort of event that happens that breaks the grip of this addiction and this disease. It kind of opens the hand so that we can, you know, take get a moment of clarity and, and reorient ourselves to where we are and what we need to do. And mine was a very painful one, and oftentimes they are, but it was a professional one. Um, for two years running uh, as a lawyer in Iowa, I lied on a form that I had to submit to the Iowa Supreme Court about filing my tax returns for the previous year. The form had to do with other things about keeping clients' accounts, trust accounts separate from operating accounts and all the things that professionals are required to do as ethical matters. But the form also asked us each to make that statement. I had gotten into a position where i Hadn't filed my returns. I got an extension, and I let the extension lapse, and I just hadn't filed because, Lewis, that's what was going on in my life. I was able to focus on my job and do my work, and probably took some sort of measure of self value in that. But everything else was falling apart. I wasn't paying my bills regularly or on time. I didn't think I had to, uh, you know, uh, and and uh, I thought I was the exception. American Express has more money than me. What? why do I have to pay them this month? You know uh, that kind of crazy thinking, but it all came down to this, where i, I had a moment of truth, and Lewis, you and i you I, I hope you appreciate this because you and I went to a school that had an honor code, and we we were we were, we were inculcated with the importance of personal honor if it young kids. and I think ultimately that's what saved my life because I got this form, and the you have it do the day before it was due. I'm filling all the rest of it out, and then I get to these two statements, and I hadn't filed my returns. And I thought, okay, what do I do? It's a Friday afternoon. This is the deadline. I've got to get a postmark today. i got to answer. So I could either answer truthfully, no, I have not filed my return. I could take the fifth, or I could say, yes, I did. But well, I didn't want them to know I hadn't filed. So I told myself, you know, I'm going to say yes now, and I'm going to mail this form, and then – it's not going to get to Des Moines until Monday and I'm going to do my returns this weekend. So I'm not, I'm kind of telling the truth in advance. I'm not really lying about that. You know, that's the kind of contortions I went through to try to make my life manageable in, in an alcoholic world. Um, and I did that for two years in a row. Of course, you know, uh, after sending in the phone, I didn't do my returns that weekend. It's pretty straightforward, pretty easy to do, but I was in the grips of my disease and I repeated that pattern for two years. And on April 1st, 1986, I got a letter from the Supreme Court saying, you know, dear Mr. McDermott, the information you furnished to us is at odds with the information we received from the Iowa Department of Revenue. Could you please explain? And I realized, Lewis, at that moment, you know, everything had fallen apart for me. Uh, but that, and that was my moment of truth. I sat with that letter and I asked myself, how did it come to this? How could I have put myself in this situation, you know? The good news is, that since that letter touched my hands on April 1, 1986, until today, I haven't had a drop of alcohol. Mm-hmm. So that was my wake-up That's call.
1: Remarkable. And I
2: got tremendous tremendous support from my... The most difficult call I had to make was to my father and my family to tell them what happened, because this was an ethical situation. It was, it, it was a matter of integrity. I was the only one of the kids in the family to go back to Iowa. You know, my father... Okay i had been a lawyer there, and people knew him there, and here, you know, this is what happened to me, you know. <clears throat> so I was filled with tremendous remorse and shame, and, and and I'll tell you, too, that as I was waiting for this to happen, Lewis, because I knew there was going to be, you know, an endgame here. I knew the shoe was going to drop at some point, and I lived in complete agony for two years as I perpetrated this, you know, falsity waiting for it to happen. It got so bad, Lewis, that, you know, before Christmas in 1985, when I'm supposed to be heading home for the annual family reunion at Christmas time in Washington, I went out to the car and closed the door behind me and turned the car on, and I wanted to take my life. I concluded that the best outcome for everybody was for me to look like I accidentally killed myself in the car while I was trying to fix something. And I, I that, that's the level of despair and the lack of, you know, answers that were available to me uh, at that point in my life. The crazy thing is that um, that my garage, I was in an apartment complex and there were like ten individual garages with separate garage doors under one roof, a shared roof. So there were ten individual garages in a row. A neighbor who had just moved in the apartment complex that I lived in, um, actually had a small business, and he was open late at night uh, during the Christmas season, you know, doing retail work. He had come home and pulled into the garage next to mine. And he comes out, and he sees my garage door now, he hears my car going. He runs into his apartment, tells his wife, call 911. And God bless him, he came back, and he opened my garage door. I'm passed out. My plan is working. I'm, I'm unconscious now. He opens the, the car door, pulls me out, and pushes up my arm around his shoulder, carries, like fireman's carrying me out of my garage and into the place, and then, you know, the police and the ambulance come. It was it called it was a suicide attempt. I went to the hospital for the night. I went back to that gentleman after being sober for nine months. I went into rehab, and I became an active member in the 12-step program. And part of that Part of the uh, part of the deal when you're in recovery is you you know, adhere to the 12 suggested steps, and one of them is making amends and kind of cleaning up your past. I went back nine months later to this gentleman. and flew back to Iowa to tell him um, that I'd gone to rehab, that I'd gotten healthy. I wanted to thank him for the courage he displayed and coming back out and pulling me out. And as I'm telling him this story, I really didn't know the guy except for, you know, uh, the fact that you just, just become a recent neighbor before I left. He gets up from his chair, asks me to stand up, and he hugs me, and he says, you know, Dan, that's the best news I've heard for a long time. I've been sober in the same 12-step program for the last three years.
1: Well, that so, is uh, a part some, of your story I had not heard before, yeah, uh, yeah, and I appreciate you sh- sharing it. We're going to talk right. – we've got just a few minutes before the break, but we're, we want to talk about uh, when people hit bottom or hopefully even before. I, you, you hope that people won't get to that situation, but what are the uh, the ways in which that people can get help? And I'd, we'd also like to hear a little bit about the organization you're doing in Florida. What are some sure, of the major sure. treatment uh, options out there for people just in terms of categories?
2: Well, you know, and Walter, I'll defer to Walter on on, on a lot of what
1: right. You and Walter, that, we're going uh, to get yeah. to you right after the break. I promise. Right.
2: But, <laughs> but let me let me add this, because this is this is very important. As as one who was an active alcoholic, what I what I came to realize is that alcoholism is a disease, but it's also an addiction. So it's confounding to the individual in that respect. For example, if you told me. Uh, you know, hey, you're, you're, you know, you have cancer, stage four cancer. I'd say, who can you send me to? Where can I, where can I get treated? The, The survival mechanism kicks in. With alcoholism, it's, it is equally as fatal, but there's a voice that says, nah, you don't have it. It's not that big a deal. You know, don't rush into anything. There's a natural reluctance. So I found when I was in the throes of it and living with this problem I created for myself, I couldn't. Find it in me to share with anybody I couldn't share with a family member to any of my good friends, to my partners to my law firm what was going on with me, and the disease wants us alone. the disease wants to keep us alone it's an isolating uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, experience and so right now, and over the years since since this happened to me back in nineteen eighty six there's a lot greater awareness uh of what's involved with 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 addiction. And there are resources. I would encourage anybody who's uh, you know struggling uh with this or knows somebody who is to just take a look and maybe you have them too want say what the local resources are they are all kinds. yeah of let me products. let
1: me just add that and i'll uh, I'll say this again at the end of the show but uh one central resource in Vermont is to go to v t help link that's v t h e l p l i n k Dot org And there are a number of resources there if you're listening to the show and, and would like you or a loved one or a friend has uh, the kind of problems that you're hearing about. Um, we're going to talk after the break very briefly about what you're doing in Florida um, with some of the the, the lawyers that uh, have run into these kind of problems. And then we're going to be talking to Mr. Wolf. But Dan, if you want to start briefly, um, tell us about the organization in Florida.
2: Right. Well, I, I'm I'm with Florida Lawyers Assistance, Inc., and it's one uh, – an organization like this is uh, established in all of the 50 – every one of the 50 states. So every state, if we're talking about professionals, every state has a lawyer's assistance program and a physician's assistance program uh, but while we're at it. So – and those are – you can find them by state if anybody's interested – but uh, our mission is to provide confidential help to lawyers who voluntarily approach us with a problem, and and we uh, we offer uh, you know we we usually begin with an evaluation to find out what we're dealing with. We send uh, we send the, the lawyer to a, a trained evaluator to kind of get the history and 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 get a kind of a uh, an inventory of what we're what we're dealing with. And then we would uh, put together kind of a, a, what we call a recovery contract where we find that when someone has a substance use disorder, especially, and we also do this on the mental health side, but I'll just keep it simple, uh, you know, your brain, your brain uh, functions differently than, than a normal brain. I mean, addiction will change how your brain operates. And what we, in a layman's terms, try to do is establish a program offers the person the chance to have the brain rewired back to the non-addicted state. Right. And so we, we offer a number of support groups. Uh We sign contracts with our folks because accountability becomes an important feature in recovery. Uh, I found that when I was at the worst of my drinking, I was a partner in a law firm and I was accountable to no one. I mean, no one, I had no one to report. I could make my own schedule. I could go where I wanted to go. I didn't have to answer to anyone. And
1: Accountability
2: is key to um, to, to recovery. So we establish an agreement where there could be a few support group
1: meetings that we run every week. We uh, uh, Dan, I am going to have to stop you. Meeting. I apologize. We're going to okay. please stay on the line. We're going to be back after sure. the break. Uh, we're going to bring in Walter at that point to talk about his book and what Great. he's doing in California. And we'll be right back. Dr. Lewis Myers back with the second half of Healthcare Today, talking with. Dan McDermott and Walter Wolfe about uh, alcohol and drug rehab and uh, recovery. Um, so I want to bring in Mr. Wolf, who's in Southern California. Uh, I noted in the introduction you spent 30 years uh, as a producer in the movie and television uh, industry, and for the last 11 years you've been helping with interventions for um, substance and alcohol u- abuse and also have just published this book called The Right Rehab. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that transition from the movie industry into, uh, into the work you're doing now?
3: Hi, Louis. Thank you very much. I was totally enraptured by Dan's story. And before I tell you mine, I just want to make one comment. When Dan was back then, he was, was, which is today, over 139 million Americans, that's 50% of Americans over the age of 12 years old, use alcohol. And over 62 million Americans are what we call bingers. And a binge means that if you are, have five or more drinks in one setting within the past 30 days, you are a binger. And it's four drinks for females. Then over 18 million Americans are what we call heavy drinkers. And what that means is if you have five or more drinks in one setting for five times... Over the past 30 days, you are a heavy drinker, and again, it's four sittings for females. So my point is, alcohol is pervasive, It it is a threat of our society, and that's why, one reason why, overall, we have over 40 million Americans, over 40 million people over the age of 12, who have a substance use disorder whether it's from illicit substances such as pharmaceuticals and drugs, other drugs, or alcohol. Now, the reason that I'm speaking with you, Lewis, is because of a 4.30 in the morning phone call that I got 11 years ago. And that phone call was uh, telling me that I had a family member who at that moment was in crisis due to addiction. And I had absolutely not a clue what to do. I didn't even know anything about treatment. So what I did was I called a friend of mine who did. I was very, very lucky to have this friend because he's somebody who I know most of my life. And he was also a high-profile member of the Los Angeles recovery community. What I can say is that within 24 hours of that initial phone call, my loved one was in detox at one of the finest rehabs uh, on the planet. Now, again, I was lucky, but I started thinking, what about the people who aren't as lucky as I am, who don't have a friend who knows everything, and those most people of the highest reputation and ethics in the treatment industry? Well, I started getting phone calls. First, it was from friends, and then friends of friends, and then eventually people who I didn't even know. And they would tell me, hey, Walter. We heard about your situation. Um, I got the same problem. What, what, what do I do? I don't know. The first thing about what to do and this happened several times and i decided that and i did help these people get into the right rehab for that particular individual only because of my friend who had introduced me to the finest people in the treatment industry and then i started uh, i absolutely loved what i did in doing that it was very fulfilling in many ways and so today I am now an interventionist. For the past seven years, I work with families. I get phone calls from families, uh, defense attorneys, uh, other, uh, rehabs, uh, police, firemen, you name it. I get phone calls uh, to either do an intervention or make sure I get a particular individual into a rehab that fits that right. Can you that
1: tell us what, an inter- what you mean by intervention?
3: Intervention means... You have an individual who is in denial of a problem and something has to happen in order to get that person to treatment or else something, some, there will be another intervention but the, an intervention of the tragic kind which could be he could kill himself, easily done today because of fentanyl, or he could kill somebody else by mistake when he's driving. Uh, and also, there's also, there are also criminal justice issues. So an intervention means that you have to convince somebody that he, has no, he or she has no choice, but they have to go to treatment. Now, let me just briefly describe there are two ways of doing intervention. One way is you work with the individual through positive reinforcement, and so there is no confrontation. And that usually takes a very, very long time. But then there's another way, which is the most prevalent way of doing intervention, and that is where you give the individual a choice. By this time, I have already worked with the family, and the family is unified that, yes, we all agree that we are enabling a certain member of the family to be the way he or she is to keep using drugs and we're tired of it. And then I also have a facility standing by waiting for that that individual. And then I present to the individual two options. Number one, your family is going to be totally supportive of you and give you every support that you could possibly imagine If you go to this particular rehab that is waiting for you, if you decide not to go, get in my car because we're going to look for a bridge that's going to be your new home. And you as a parent, you feel horrible. You feel like, how could I do this to my child? How could I do this to my relative? You know what? It is the only thing that works because one thing is for certain, if you don't do that, the Indian is going to be a lot worse. So, and there's a particular name for that kind of therapy, and it's basically pack your stuff and go therapy, and that's the one that is the most prevalent. And I take people all over uh, the country. And uh, so remember, treatment is a $42 billion a year unregulated business. So families need to, and it's full of grifters, it's full of imposters, it's full of charlatans who want to do nothing then nothing more than to separate a family from, his, from their money. And so I decided that families needed to know what to do, uh, what are their options, and they need to get that information from an unbiased source. So that's where I came in with The Right Rehab. I wrote this book as a guidebook for people. This is what you have to do when you have to send somebody to a, to, to rehab, So the right rehab, it explains what addiction and mental disorder treatment are, and it also tells you how it describes how to get the right treatment for the right individual. And it's for people who either, whether they live on Park Avenue or on Skid Row, I describe, I explicitly tell people, describe to people that there is a treatment plan for you, and I show you how to get it.
1: I think the that's particularly line, important, Walter, here in, in, in Vermont because, uh, uh, many of the people that I see in the hospital don't have much in the way of financial means. And in fact, some of our alcohol treatment programs are rather l- limited in Vermont. So finding the right one that people can afford and can access is critical.
3: Oh, it's, it's actually, it's more than critical. And if, If you read the book, it'll explain how you can get treatment, whether you have resources or if you don't have resources. Now, I understand that Vermont is one of the states that expanded Medicaid. I can't tell you how incredibly important that was in making Medicaid available to those with limited, with limited resources. And if you, and in the book, I also describe, first of all, what is treatment? what is the right rehab for you It's not it's not like one size fits all those there are particular issues that have to be that have to fit with an individual in order for that rehab to be the right place and then i also of course describe intervention and then i describe the right plan because you just can't send somebody to rehab for 30 days and then boom brand new person it doesn't work like that because Recovery is a lifetime endeavor, and Dan can tell you much more about that than, than I can. But you have to have at least a year-long plan for an individual, which starts with detox, which starts with formal treatment, but then how does the person live his or her life so that they can keep st- keep and stay in sobriety and finally achieve a life in recovery like Dan has done.
1: Dan and mentioned, then, uh, Walter, I, Dan mentioned uh, AA which is, um, of course, uh, basically free of charge um, uh, in most communities. Uh, And it certainly helped him and it helped many people. What are your thoughts on AA, Alcoholics Anonymous?
3: My thoughts on AA is that it has saved so many people's lives. I, I, I cannot speak highly enough about AA. Lewis, when one needs to go to treatment, you have the option, if you have the resources You can spend $80,000 a month going to a high-end rehab, or you can get treatment for free in a church basement. AA is also treatment for a lot of people. I know people, you know, if you have a substance use disorder, it is not mandatory. It is not necessary that you go to a residential facility. I know people who have had over 30 and 40 years of sobriety. They never stepped one foot inside a specialty or residential facility. AA is what works for them. And as long as they keep going to AA, that's how they learn how they can live the life in sobriety and in recovery. So my point is, again, there's no such thing as one size fits all. It all depends upon individual
1: so what are you hearing from people who've read your book are you getting feedback from some of your readers
3: well I got a call yesterday from a uh, um, from somebody in, in Florida who was reading my book and she called me and um, she and right away I was able to help her uh, the best story uh, is I get a call from an admissions person at a rehab where I send people. And he says, he says, Walter, you can't believe what just happened. He said I have a mother bringing her 19 year old son in for treatment, and during the uh, assessment period, you know, she is asking me, um, she's asking me almost like a hundred questions, and I realize that she's reading my book to ask all the questions. Now, how can that be any more, you know? inspiring than to know that people are reading my book.
1: By the way, can we, can this book be found on Amazon?
3: uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, there are other sources, but I always tell people Amazon because that's the one that's most known. It's called the right rehab. And the author of course is Walter Wolf. And if people want to know more about what I do and more about the book, they can always go to my webs or get a hold of me. They can always go to my website, which is therightrehab dot com, and that has the information of how to get a hold of me through through email or you know, through a, through a phone or through
1: phone. One of the uh, one of the misconceptions I think about drinking, and it, it, you know, is that somehow we think of men being alcoholics, but fact is that women are also suffer from drinking disorders. And that uh, alcohol affects their livers actually earlier and harder than it does men's. I know at the hospital where I work, we have seen a number of women dying from alcohol use, alcohol abuse uh, in in their 40s and 50s. The men tend to perhaps die in their 60s. Um, But I think people forget that women or aren't aware that women are really affected by this.
3: Hey, Lewis, substance use disorder is an equal it's an equal, uh, it's a disease that treats everybody the same. Doesn't matter whether you're a male, female. Doesn't matter where you are on the socioeconomic ladder. They, addiction has its own rules. And I, I like to also, I very much like to include uh, drugs, you know, pharmaceuticals, because when you have over 40 million people in our country, who have a substance use disorder. Granted, most of them are due to alcohol, but a lot of rest of them are due to substances or even a process addiction. And when I say process, I mean something like uh, an eating disorder or uh, OCD, Uh, uh, addictions that are not using substances, but because of a mental disorder, that mental disorder drives their behavior for uh, For doing those kinds of behaviors, such as an eating disorder, because instead of reaching for the bottle or instead of reaching for the pills, they reach for something else, and many times it 's food, sometimes it 's sex, sometimes it 's porn, sometimes it 's gaming it's all addiction comes in all forms, and we have to understand that addiction is not is, is a disease it 's a chronic brain disease and it's not because somebody has a low character or or low morals it is it is a disease and it's the kind of disease that's chronic you, you'll never be cured of addiction but you can learn to manage it so that it doesn't manage
1: you anymore do you find in your experience that people who uh, were english may not be their first language for example the hispanic community uh, or other, uh, different ethnic, uh, communities have more difficulty accessing services?
3: Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's, that's true actually. And also in some cases, there is a, an immediate distrust of, uh, of that sort of, uh, going for that kind of treatment. And, you know, historically, it's, it's not so, it, there is a stigma there is you know the stigma persists i mean today there are still uh, there are a lot of enlightened people that realize that addiction is is a disease uh but unfortunately there still all there's a whole score of unenlightened people who still think that there's a you know stigma attached to, to any kind of addiction
1: dan in your work with with attorneys uh um uh Obviously, they are in a, probably a higher income bracket, uh, high, perhaps higher educational bracket than than many in in, in the communities. Um, is that a help or an impairment sometimes to getting help?
2: The impairment, although there is an attitude that I think uh, Walter uh, uh, alluded to, that if I'm successful, I must not, you know, have this character defect you know if if you think of say alcoholism or addiction as as something that um, uh is the experience of lower class folks and you can say look how could i have this kind of income how could i have this kind of job and be an alcoholic or a drug addict the answer is that there are many high functioning uh, addicts all over the place right um i i also find Lewis, that there's a there's an added wrinkle when you get to the professions because Lawyers and doctors, I mean, there's a natural reluctance to owning up to the idea that you're that you're an alcoholic or you're an addict, right? I mean, there's just this denial ca- characteristic of the disease, right, and the addiction. But it's especially pronounced when you get to the professions, because a lot of people who might be on the fence about, should I see if I should talk to somebody about health, might decide not to because, well, this is going to hurt my professional standing. If other doctors know that I've gone for help or I've started to ask for help, if other lawyers find out that can somehow be used against me or that can hurt me professionally, so it's better I just keep this to myself. So we find that the rates of addiction are much higher with lawyers and doctors than in the average population, and part of it is that that. Uh, instinct to kind of protect their professional standing.
1: Which is uh, understanding, uh, understandable, but nevertheless gets in the way of their, their recovery. Um, right. We know that alcohol, there's also certainly a genetic component that makes people perhaps predisposed in some cases. So people who do struggle with, with alcohol have seen it in their own families, family members. Um, does that help or hurt in terms of well, you know, getting glad- help?
2: I'm glad that you raised that, Lewis, because as I sat and listened, I reflected on our earlier conversation, and I don't think I ever answered your first question. Like, okay, so you were a high performer in high school. What happened? Um, all I needed was to be introduced to alcohol. I, I, I'm not a trained, uh you know, med- I'm not a doctor, for example, so I'll leave that to others. But my experience is that... Um, there is a pre, uh, there is a genetic predisposition to, um, to the disease. My grandfather and my great grandfather on my mother's side both died of cirrhosis of the liver before they were 40 years old, and um, and that was before there was real you know, treatment available for anybody. So it, it didn't. It can be generation skipping. My parents did not drink alcoholically. So as I said, as I said in the start, I grew up in a very Warm, stable, supportive environment. But I became the alcoholic, and I'm convinced all I needed was to drink to become. It wasn't environmental. It wasn't a bad childhood. It wasn't you know any of that. It was that's what was going to happen to me if I drank. I would eventually you know um, the addiction would flourish, and there I'd be. And that's what happened. So recognizing that actually is a relief. Because I thought I was, when I was trying to kill myself and when when my world was falling apart, I didn't know what the heck was happening. I asked myself the same thing. you Hey, you know, what happened to the guy in high school? You know, the fact is, like like Walter said, I had a disease. You know, it could have been diabetes. It could have been cancer, right? But it was alcoholism. That was it for me, and I needed to figure that out. And once I did and realized there's a way to deal with it, recovery was right there. And my life has been... Better than I ever could have imagined it in my most fervent drunken dreams, you know. Uh, and that's how this thing works. So I hope that if folks think, Oh, I didn't have a bad childhood," I, I can't business. Sometimes it's that genetic predisposition. And once once I realized that's what I was dealing with, I said, "Oh my gosh, there's an explanation for what's going on here, and there's a way to get better." And like Neil said, it's a lifelong thing. It's like working out. You know, I've been, I've been sober 36 years. I was at a meeting this morning. I've been at a meeting a day, 36 years later. At the beginning, I thought that was some sort of onerous sentence. It's like daily mass. If you're a Catholic, really? you got to go to daily mass, you know? But it's not that. It's like working out. It's like, you know, it, it's what makes me fit, you know, and, and 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 keeps me fit in the day. So, um, Walter, position can I- position is important.
1: Yes. yes, and Walter, I wanted to get back to you as we near the end uh, in you know if alcohol and alcoholism at times runs in families, does it make it more difficult in terms of these interventions if everyone in the family is an alcoholic or several of the people are alcoholics?
3: Well, that's a good question. It all depends on where they are and you know are are they still in denial or or have they surrendered? And and there are also there are other issues. Uh, a lot of uh, physicians and uh, addictionologists will say that addiction is a is as a result of genetics and environment. Such as some of the other factors are trauma, neglect, uh, of course, family history of of addiction parental substance use, and one of the other major ones is, is there a co-occurring mental disorder? If there's one point I would like to get across, Louis, uh, to people, is that the reason that it's very important that you have to have the right facility for the right individual is, versus there are four diagnoses. One diagnosis is just substance use disorder. Another diagnosis is just mental disorder. And then there's primary mental disorder, secondary substance use disorder, or primary substance use disorder, secondary mental disorder. And the reason I mention that is that it's imperative that there be a diagnosis that identifies which disorder is driving the other. When you know that, then you can, can at least know which kind of facility is the right one for an individual because you have to go to a facility whose licensure matches the diagnosis so if you have someone who has primary substance use and secondary Walter, mental I'm, disorder i'm going
1: to have to stop you because we're getting near the end and i think what you're you're making some critical points i should also mention that i hope primary care providers who are often the point of uh, Entry to the healthcare system are aware of some of these, uh, issues. And I hope listeners will read your book called The Right Rehab. It can be found, as you said, on websites, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc., or hardcover. Um, I want to thank both our guests today, uh, for Dan McDermott for, for sharing your story. Uh, and we are so glad about the work you're doing in Florida and on the West Coast, uh, uh Walter thank you for the work you're doing as well. Um, and uh thank Pleasure you both. To
2: be with you, Lewis. Yeah.
1: Thank you for with you Yeah. join us please join us next week for Healthcare Today. Uh stay safe out there. Be kind to yourselves, be kind to others.
0: Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary residents. retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kenny Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com. employee-owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com.
1: The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.